Welcome to The Cutting Edge of Psychedelics Research, a conversation hosted by moderator J.P. Harpigny at a Bioneers conference with Alicia Danforth, Charles Grobe, Kat Harrison, Maria Vittoria Magnini, and Ralph Metzner. We hope you enjoy it. We join the conversation as it begins. Um, welcome to the panel that is known in the program as the cutting edge of psychedelic research. In a few moments ago, just speaking with uh, one of our guests, Ralph Metzner, he made a good point. He said, really, it should be called the growing edge of psychedelic research. It's so much about plants. It's, uh, it's about expansion. And um, it's a better term for what we're really here to talk about today. So actually, welcome to the growing edge of psychedelic research. Um, I'm Kathleen Harrison. I'm an ethnobotanist um, based in studying nature and traditional cultures and their relationship to nature. And part of that relationship is um, belief, ritual, mythology, and often visionary plants or fungi and uh, shamanic initiation and that kind of thing. So I'm an old guest at Bioneers, been on this panel myself a number of times and moderated a few, but it's a distinct honor today to be here with this particular panel of guests, of experts, in various aspects of, of uh, psychedelic research. So um, I'm going to give a little introduction to our topic and then introduce each of them before they each uh, give a some opening statements on their work. And then we'll follow it by nearly a half hour of uh, question and answers with the audience. So hold your questions for that Q&A period and um, see what you can learn between now and then. I'm assuming that most of you, if you're here today, know something about this topic and also have curiosity about where it stands today and where it's headed. The term research means that we look and that we look again um, in, this, in seeking to understand something that is a mystery to us, in seeking to learn something new about what seemed familiar to us. And um, research is really how we got through this last 100,000 years of human history into uh, the complex creations and beauty and problems that we're all here to talk about today that Bioneers is focused on. Um, much of that research, of course, has been, most of it, among traditional peoples. And uh, the combination of trial and error and divine inspiration, um, curiosity, that leads us to try new things and to make sense of them in the, the big picture that we live in. So I've always felt that it's important for us to acknowledge um, our, our own ancestors and the ancestors of other human beings um, throughout the ages and all the research that they have done into these states, into these um, so-called altered states, into the, the in-between worlds and how to come and go between them and be stronger and healthier and help each other as a result of what we learn there. That research, um, I'm going to keep on, I have a promise to myself to keep on 
underscoring the value and beauty of that kind of research that has been happening through the ages. And even though we're thrilled to see that scientific, contemporary scientific research is opening up to these realms now, um, let, let us not forget that the world hasn't been waiting for certified experts to do this research. It has been happening all along. And part of that more recent folk research, as I call it, is, is the work that's been happening in this country and in Europe as well in the last half century, in the last 60 years since uh, psychedelics really became, came into our hands in a culture that had not had them or had forgotten that there was this kind of medicine in the world, as, as traditional people often call it. One of the speakers this morning was saying something about how human beings are adaptive creatures, that we are here to adapt to our surroundings, and that as the problems arise, even partly of our own creation, some of those problems, that we adapt into being the healers then for the problems that we've generated. And uh, in, among some of the Latin American indigenous people that I've worked with, they say a similar thing about how the medicine, whichever it is, mushrooms among one group, ayahuasca with another, a bark with yet another, that these are medicines that are here to help us adapt to um, keep the world healthy or find balance and health again if it's gone off balance. And that if we don't recognize what we're being offered, then we really, really are in trouble, that these offerings are always here. So um, I think it's important in thinking about research today to remember that that point of view, that there is this offering around us, and how to relate to that gift, and how to use it and bring it into manifestation as a healing tool is part of our job, is part of the job of consciousness. And that includes this, the, the baby boomers, which you know we, many of us still take pride in being the willing guinea pigs of uh, the psychedelic revolution and all the changes that seem to have something to do, some kind of ripple effect from our uh, meeting of these substances and these ways of thinking and eventually these plants and fungi in the modern world. And the fact that we're talking about it still, that we're able to talk about it, um, even though it's been a taboo for uh, half a century, is, uh, well, it's testimony to our belief in how important it is. Um, all of these people, all, all of us on the panel, have had to be open-minded in the face of possible criticism or the whole, the whole scientific and all forms of research is what I'm trying to say, um, have had to either be underground or stand up to the fact that this was taboo and do it above ground. And I'm you know, a true believer in the underground and all that goes on there because I think a lot of what we need to be ha have happening uh, necessarily happens under the surface. But it is this moment right now, this past decade, when this kind of research has come to the surface enough that although we're in that ironic tension right now of, of talking very much about illegal substances, Schedule One drugs, they are beginning to get approval 
for studies. The results of these studies are showing how amazingly valuable they are in the right context, in various contexts, and, um, and a field is opening up, finally, for a medicine that many of us feel our culture and our planet really needs, a kind of medicine, many of them within that. We'll have reports today from different uh, kinds of research, but also I think all of us are thinking about, and you might as well, think about what sort of research would you like to see in the future? The speaker, John Warner, this morning was talking about uh, green chemistry, and he's a chemist, and he said it was one of the two epiphanies of his life when he realized that he should ask the molecule what it wanted to do in order to avoid kind of creating toxic chemistry and toxic repercussions from uh, chemical invention and experimentation. And this kind of ask the molecule thought is uh, key to working with these medicines too. What is this medicine? What is this molecule or this compound good for? What does it feel like it wants to serve in us? If it's true, this traditional belief that these are here for our adaptation and for our balance in some way that they're meeting us halfway, then what is it that they're offering and how might we create a an experiment, a study, a survey that asks the right questions and from that gains useful, useful answers, useful conversation for the next stage. It's an evolution. We're in the middle of it. The door is only opened. Well, actually, the front gate is still closed. It's all technically illegal. The back gate, somebody has left open an inch, and people are starting to slide in and do the work. And it's a wonderful thing that this is happening. I'd like to introduce our first speaker, who is uh, Dr. Charles Grobe. I, I have the pleasure of having known three of our four speakers for many years, and um, so we're familiar with each other. Um, Charlie is the director of the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiat Psychiatry at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and he's a professor of psychiatrics and pediatrics at the UCLA School of Medicine. He conducted the first government-approved psychobiological research study of MDMA, and he was the principal investigator on a research project in the Amazon studying the visionary plant brew ayahuasca, and that was back in the early 1990s. He recently completed a research investigation on the efficacy of psilocybin treatment in terminally ill patients with anxiety. A founding board member of the Hefter Research Institute, which is devoted to fostering research on psychedelics. He's also the editor of uh, Hallucinogens, a reader, and co-editor of Higher Wisdom, Eminent Elders Explore the Continuing Impact of Psychedelics. So I present you with Dr. Charles Grobe. Well, thank you, Kat. It's good to be here today to speak with all of you. And um, I'm going to kind of give you an overview, at least my perspective, on the, uh, the past, present, and future of psychedelic research, all condensed into 10 minutes. So, uh, he, so here we go. Um, well, I'll say first that um, I, uh, 
first, uh, the last time I presented at uh, Bioneers uh, or the Seeds of Change conference was back in 1993. And at that point, I, I had planned but had not yet started our research studies with MDMA and with ayahuasca. So um, I'm happy to report to you today that we actually conducted those uh, studies and, uh, you know, to successful uh, completion and have published and, uh, and, we, and we hope have kind of helped establish a, a uh, kind of a new foundation for this new generation of, um, of research. Now, in terms of how I got into this field, um, you know, about 40 years ago, I was um, in, in kind of out of college and uh, kind of uh, not sure what I wanted to do. My, uh, my father was very concerned about what he thought was my lack of direction, but I had an opportunity at that time to, um, to read the literature on psychedelic research that had been conducted in the 50s and the 60s, and I was very impressed. So I, I went to my dad and I said, Dad, I figured out what I want to do. Uh, he said, well, what's that, son? I said, I want to I research psychedelics. He says, oh. I said, well, yeah, Dad, this, man, there's something to this. I mean, there's so much to learn about the mind, the mind-brain interface, mental illness, new paradigms to treat uh, uh, mental illness. And, and then he said to me, well, son, you know, there may be something to what you say, but no one will listen to you unless you get your credentials. So then I, I knew I had to go back to school, and um, so for the next uh, 20 years, I uh, you know, went back to school, collected some degrees, and uh, did all my training, and kind of kept up with what limited literature there was, and it seemed to be less and less. And then in the uh, uh, late 80s, uh, I moved from Johns Hopkins to UC Irvine, and I, and I connected with Roger Walsh, and I told him about my disillusionment with mainstream psychiatry, and he said, well, Charlie, if you could do anything, what would you do? I said, well, I know exactly what I'd do, but it's not possible. He said, well, what is it? I'd, I'd research psychedelics. He says, well, that, it, it, that's important, and it should be possible, and it will be possible. So with Roger's encouragement, I, um, I started to put together uh, research protocols and, uh, and also started to meet and collaborate with some very important people that, uh, that I met and who've been fellow travelers on this path. First and foremost, Ralph Metzner has taught me a great deal about how to, uh, kind of the wisdom behind psychedelics and how to uh, optimally uh, uh, structure these uh, experiences, the importance of, um, of ritual. Uh, I also worked very closely with Dennis McKenna years ago and uh, as we developed the ayahuasca study in, 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 in Brazil. So, um, uh, so you know, with the MDMA study, we, uh, we had the first FDA-approved study to uh, examine safety in normal volunteers, which we did and have written extensively on this. With the ayahuasca study, we studied uh, members of the uh, syncretic ayahuasca church Unyada Vegetal in Brazil and spent quite a long time in, uh, in Manaus in 93, uh, where I worked very closely with my colleagues Dennis McKenna and Jace Calloway. And, well, as Brazilian collaborators, we, you know, if I had more time, we could talk about what we found. But, but, but suffice it to say, I was most impressed with this powerful uh, psychoactive catalyst utilized entirely within a ritual context in Brazil. And I felt that ritual context helped to optimize safety parameters, which are, which are absolutely key when doing this work, and also optimizing uh, uh, outcome, e efficacious, therapeutic, uh, outcome and, uh, and was just um, a very, very uh, gratifying experience to work with the members of the Onyao, work with my, my 
my scientific and medical colleagues, should also say that I was very much involved in the uh, Unyata Vegetal case that went to the Supreme Court in the early 2000s. The Unyao had established a, uh, a branch in Santa Fe, which was uh, effectively shut down by DEA and Customs in the late 90s. They, uh, they, uh, they filed a suit in federal court uh, uh, charging that they had been denied their freedom of religion rights. Uh, uh, I was their expert medical witness. I was, you know, on the witness stand for uh, six hours, kind of being questioned by the U.S. Uh, Justice Department lawyers. It was a, quite an impressive case run by a brilliant lawyer named Nancy Hollander from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And uh, we had a very conservative Republican federal judge. I thought, well, we'll make a good effort, but there's no way this will, this will fly. But I, w I was just amazed that at the end of the day, the judge ruled on, on behalf of the, uh, the Unyao and on the freedom that they, might, that they should be able to use ayahuasca as a psychoactive sacrament within ritual. Uh, and uh, predictably, it was appealed by the Justice Department, went first to the appeals panel in Denver, which, which reaffirmed the judge's decision, went then, appealed again, went to the full circuit of uh, court of Appeals in Denver. They ruled eight to five on behalf of the Uniao. So predictably, Justice Department appealed again, went to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, which in February 2006 ruled unanimously that the, uh, the Uniao had a right to utilize ayahuasca within the context of their religious practice. So it's so, so this indeed was an extraordinary precedent. and. To, you know, to my amazement, to find that the Supreme Court valued freedom of religion rights over the drug war. So, uh, it, uh, and the, the opinion was written by uh, the Chief Justice, John Roberts. Um, subsequently, I, I've also, well, I've also been involved for the past 17 years with the Hefter Research Institute uh, uh, with uh, like-minded uh, uh, scientists and physicians, and we've worked together to facilitate the development of uh, approved uh, studies examining the uh, safety and efficacy of psychedelics in clinical patient populations, as well as exploring the neurobiologic underpinnings for, uh, for psychedelics. I, I, uh, you can check out the hefter, H-E-F-F-T-E-R.org on, uh, on the web to find, see a little more uh, detail. But uh, let me say, in terms of the work I've done, nothing really would have happened without the support, encouragement, and the active participation with my colleagues on the hefter, as well as other colleagues throughout the uh, U.S. And, and, and around the world. Now, um, my most uh, recent study has been with uh, the... Uh, uh, with psilocybin, the active alkaloid for hallucinogenic mushrooms. Uh, we applied in the early 2000s to the, uh, to the FDA for permission to work with a population of people with advanced cancer and anxiety to treat uh, the anxiety. And there was a lot of back and forth for almost two years. But at the end of the day, we got approval from all the, the federal regulatory agencies, the state regulatory agencies, and uh, my own hospital, IRB, and uh, research committee. And what this taught me was that when one comes in with a, a solid, uh, well-thought-out uh, protocol att attending to all the essential safety parameters, um, and if one is persistent and, and tenacious, it is possible to get all the approvals you need. And uh, so we, uh, we spent um, several years conducting our study, and I won't, I won't give, 
give you the details now of what we, uh, exactly what we did and what we found. I'll leave that to my colleague, Alicia Danforth, who in a few minutes will share with you the substance of our study. But uh, we successfully brought the study to conclusion. We, we established very strong physiological and psychological safety parameters within the context of our, of our treatment protocol. And in uh, September, our article was published in, online in the Archives of General Psychiatry, uh, considered the number one impact journal in the field. So, um, so mainstream psychiatry now, uh, although some, perhaps belatedly, seems to be acknowledging that this is a vital area of research. And uh, so, in a sense, we're opening up to the mainstream. It'll be published in print in the January 2011 um, issue. Uh, so let me also mention that um, uh, two other studies, both supported by the Hefter Institute, are now actively conducting similar studies using psilocybin to treat advanced cancer anxiety. Uh, Roland Griffith's team at Johns Hopkins and Steve Ross's team at NYU, both very, very solid uh, research teams uh, who, are, who, again, are extending our work. And, uh, and we're, we're also hoping, anticipating other well-established research groups around the country and abroad will, um, will also get uh, uh, involved in this area. Now, in regards to, how much time do I have? Five minutes. In regards to uh, the future, there's, there's much to be done. Um, for starters, uh, you know, our, our, you know, Alicia and I and our, our group at Harbor UCLA are very interested in extending our work with, um, with uh, psilocybin and advanced cancer patients, and perhaps looking as well into other uh, uh, people who have other kinds of medical illness with a, uh, with a terminal prognosis who are suffering uh, deep and uh, uh, unremitting uh, uh, existential anxiety. We, we feel this model really deserves a lot more attention and, uh, and with the NYU and the Hopkins group and the additional work we want to do, we really feel we're on the threshold of establishing this as a uh, potentially a viable treatment. Um, another area we're very interested in looking at is the, um, the, the potential utilization of uh, psychedelic compounds with individuals who, are, who have what is known as high-functioning autism or Asperger's disorder. There's a very, very intriguing body of literature from the late 50s and early 60s where this work was done actually in, uh, in children who had, uh, by today's standards, would be diagnosed with infantile autism. And the, some of the responses really were quite remarkable. Now, the, um, the methodologies were quite limited. There were some problems with that research, but we're, we're and, and working with children is really not going to be feasible for the foreseeable future. But working with young adults uh, with these conditions certainly would be uh, an, an area we're interested in exploring. Another area which is really, which showed great promise in the 60s. And again, there's much to be learned from the lessons in the late 50s and the 60s with researchers such as Ralph and his colleagues. But one of the areas that really needs uh, a new examination, an area for which we, we still do not have effective treatment, is the treatment of chronic alcoholism. There was extraordinary work done first by Humphrey Osmond in Canada, later by Stan Groff in Maryland and others, which showed a remarkable facility for a, a psychedelic treatment model to um, to catalyze uh, sustained sobriety. And given the lack of effective treatments, this is certainly an area to explore. And then a final area I I'd certainly would like to get into, to, to explore again, would be the uh, 
the, the, the degree to which ayahuasca might be utilized in, as an effective uh, clinical treatment protocol. But, uh, but that study, as well as the other studies, are really hung up by essentially one, one issue. It's no longer the regulatory agencies, which proved to be, which proved to be uh, uh, workable. They would bounce our protocols back and forth. It took longer than we might like. But at the end of the day, they approved a workable study. It's not the regulatory agency issue any longer. It's now funding, which, uh, which we're really operating on a shoestring. We are, we are not able to access federal uh, research dollars. It's all privately raised. So um, it's uh, um, an area that really merits uh, new funding. So I just want to throw that out, that we really are, I think, at the threshold of this field opening up. We need to... Um, be appreciative not only of the, uh, the lessons of the 60s, but also the lessons of the indigenous people, of the shamanic practitioners who worked with these powerful uh, psychoactive plants for millennia and, and knew better than anyone how to safely uh, 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 utilize um, a ritual uh, a structure to ensure safety and optimal outcome, and who, who had the greatest of respect and reverence for these compounds, never utilized them in a recreational sense, but only for purposes of healing and uh, to, to really better the, the, the culture and as part of their spiritual system. Um, one final point to make uh, is that uh, there's a new project that I'm involved with at Purdue University. The Purdue University Library has established a psychoactive archive where the, the collected papers of the, um, of, of the veteran researchers from the 50s and 60s and, and after, and I guess pretty soon I'll be an old researcher as well, so I'll donate my stuff, is collecting archival material where this material can be sa saved and preserved for future generations to study and uh, to continue to, to, to explore the, uh, the degree to which these compounds might be of value helping us with, with, with healing and for other purposes to really help, help our culture wake up. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Charlie. Um, speaking of research, and if you would like to find your way to some of these papers that are coming out about this kind of research, including ones that um, Charles and others have, uh, who are here have worked on, um, if you know the website erowid.org, E-R-O-W-I-D.org, that's a fantastic uh, uh, direction to go to begin to find out where things have been written about that are formal studies, and then there's lots of informal reports there as well. And maps.org has also sponsored and written about a number of kinds of psychedelic research. Um, our next guest is... Alicia Danforth, um, she's a uh, clinical psychedelic researcher and writer. She coordinated and co-facilitated treatment sessions for a cancer anxiety trial with psilocybin at the Harbor UCLA Med Center in Los Angeles. Uh, this study marked the first time psilocybin was provided as treatment in a clinical setting since research was stopped in the 1970s. Inspired by the results of this work, Alicia enrolled in a PhD program in clinical psychology at the Institute for Transpersonal Psychology. And um, her doctoral research is in progress on the potential of MDMA and similar compounds as potential supplements to psychotherapeutic intervention for individuals with high-functioning autism and Asperger's syndrome, as you were just hearing about. 
In addition to her academic and clinical work, Alicia has volunteered as a crisis support provider for psychedelic emergency assistance, both with Cosmic Care at the um, Boom Festival, that great festival in Portugal, and with volunteers from 20 different countries there, and also as a green dot at a uh, ranger at Burning Man. It's one of the wonderful ways that we do take care of each other for people who get in over their heads with uh, intensity in some of these situations. Uh, there are wonderful caregiving going on in those places and guidance. She is co-teaching the first graduate level course on psychedelics, this is current, for clinicians at the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology along with Jim Fadiman and David Lukoff. The class is called Psychedelics, Theory, Research, and Clinical Applications. And um, Alicia and Maria and I will all be speaking next weekend at the Women's Visionary Congress up in Petaluma. So uh, that's something for you to know about as well. It's open to the public, uh, women's, let's see, what is it called, visionarycongress.org, and there will be postcard flyers about that put out later too. Um, Alicia, thank you very much. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Thank you very much for the opportunity to tell you the story of the psilocybin study today. Dr. Grobe has sort of had us flying around at the 50,000 foot level, and I'm going to take us in for a closer look at exactly what we were doing with this research. Uh, to start, I just have to say I'm, I'm one of those people who gets very anxious before I speak, and it's part of my ritual just to find some quiet time to myself, make room for spirit, and ask for guidance. And I was out here with a flock of geese and looking at the pussy willow reeds and the ducks on the water. and. I was feeling some regret that I didn't bring the, the really fancy PowerPoint that I'd made today because I thought it would be better just to speak with you instead of hiding behind slides. So I thought, I'll make really detailed notes and that will be my crutch. Well, I went back to check out in my hotel room and uh, I sat on my reading glasses. <laughs> so <laughs> I had to remind myself that when you ask for guidance, in my case, I have to be prepared for it to show up in any form that it may, I think I can still see the bold words in my outline. So I am truly speaking from the heart today. Um, I'd like to know... <laughs> I'd like to know just a little bit about who I'm speaking with. So I'll start by saying, who has been aware of this study in, in, down in Los Angeles for a year or more? couple hands. Okay, how many of you saw something in the press in the last month or two when the paper was studied, something in the media about psilocybin research? Okay, and how many of you are hearing about this research for the very first time? Wow, okay, I'm going to take a, a leap of faith that this is a pretty friendly audience. And I'll let you in on some of the insider information here. So uh, I'm going to resort to what I learned in journalism school to stick with who, what, why, where, when, and how, but uh, not necessarily in that order. So as we've mentioned, the what is this was the first treatment study for individuals with advanced cancer since research was stopped in the 70s. It was a pilot study to assess safety and feasibility. There were 12 participants, so uh, it wasn't the for, for, 
foremost goal of the study to show anything about ex uh, efficacy, but we'll, we'll see what we found out a little bit later. One point that's important to clarify is that we were working with synthetic psilocybin. We weren't out scrounging in cow patties to, to get the, uh, the drug that was provided. And we were treating anxiety, not cancer. That's an important point to keep in mind as well. So where? This was at the Harbor UCLA Medical Center in Los Angeles, California. It was in the large county hospital in a research wing. We had a private room. One uh, participant would be in there at a time. We made an extra effort to decorate the room and make it conducive to a psychedelic experience. It was a bit of a barrier to recruitment. A lot of people with cancer would tell me the last thing I want to do is spend another night in the hospital. So hold a vision for a future where we can do this work in, in a much more lovely setting. Um, okay, who? There are several uh, answers to that question. Most importantly, we had 12 very brave individuals, 11 women and one man, um, some of whom traveled two round trips from the East Coast to Los Angeles and some from the Bay Area as well. Um, which I think says a lot uh, that they felt strongly enough about this work to make that kind of a commitment. Eleven were Caucasian and one participant was Asian. An area for uh, improvement in this research is expanding our cultural diversity. Every individual had stage four cancer, which means it was metastatic, started in one system of the body and moved to another. Um, Several of them had never taken a psychedelic in their lives. Some of them had. They had different spiritual orientations, um, very diverse group in that regard, and their motivations for participating varied widely. It's not a safe assumption to uh, conclude that anybody who wants to be in a study like this wants to because they're consumed with fears about death or pain a lot of other existential issues were brought forward as the primary intention, such as improving relationships that were feeling the strain of a serious illness, uh, forgiveness that hadn't taken place, that needed to be resolved, um, and so on. Another answer to the question of who was who was doing this research, it's a very small team. Um, Dr. Grobe, as you know, was the principal investigator. Uh, it really was an example of a tiny group of individuals um, making a change by being persistent. Um, but there's another level that's often unacknowledged and kind of invisible that I want to mention to you today. The Hefter Research Institute provided the financial support that this study required. There was no government funding. Uh, we didn't dip into a big pool uh, to, to fund this study. Individuals who were passionate and had a vision about what psilocybin could do um, made it possible through financial support. When? This is an easy one to answer. The process of uh, getting the appropriate permissions from regulatory agencies began in 2002. The government was pretty reasonable to work with. Uh, it took a bit to be able to work with a controlled substance, but by 2004, the team was ready to treat the first participant. Um, in 2008, the last treatment session took place, so it did take a long time just to recruit 12 individuals. 
2009 was devoted to analyzing the data and preparing a manuscript. And in September, the Archives of General Psychiatry, which I'll mention again, is the most impactful psychiatric journal uh, published online, and the findings paper will appear in print in January. Briefly, how? How did we go about this? It was a placebo-controlled study, referred to as within-subject, which meant everybody was their own control. We didn't have a separate control group, because if you think about it, it really wouldn't be ethical to tell people with a terminal illness that it was too bad, so sad, you just got the sugar pill. Um, so everyone had an opportunity to have an active session, but it was double-blind. The researcher, neither researchers nor the participants knew which time it would be niacin and which time it would be psilocybin. And uh, instruments were collected, surveys that monitored mood and depression, anxiety, um, and so forth at intervals before, uh, on the session day, and afterwards with a follow-up of up to six months. So I'll translate the results that appear in the abstract of the article. This is what was found. Safe physiological and psychological responses were demonstrated during treatment sessions. That means we monitored heart rate, blood pressure, temperature. The, the primary concern was safety because this was the first time out. There were no clinically significant adverse events with psilocybin. Translated, that means nobody had a bad trip. Nobody freaked out, ran out of the room. Um, there's a summary of some of the statistically significant findings about improved mood that we found with some of the instruments. We did get some good hard data um, to make the case that this was beneficial. And um, on some of the instruments, there was a trend towards improved mood that perhaps a larger study with more participants would provide more conclusive data that, in fact, it was helping people um, feel less anxiety and less depressed. So now I come to the last and most difficult question to answer. Why? Why did we do this? Well, one answer, the short answer to the question is Dr. Grove is an extremely patient man who was willing to wait a couple of decades until he saw his moment of opportunity. Um, I tend to have a very simple answer the question of why. It's kind of, again, a bottomless question with a million answers, but it's sufficient for me to recognize that the earth gifted us with healing mushrooms, and we should probably learn how to use them wisely. That's enough for me. <laughs> Last month, I presented to a group of science-minded people in LA, and I was really challenged on this point. After I spoke, the speakers were supposed to go up to a booth and kind of hold court and answer questions for everyone, and I was looking forward to that. And the event organizer approached me and said, this man needs to speak with you. And I realized very quickly that he was seething with anger, almost felt as if the guy wanted to punch me. And I was taken aback, and I just tried to stay grounded, and. He challenged me, and he let me know he was very angry. He said, how could you stand up there and say that getting high is going to help dying people? I don't get high. I think people should be able to get high on life. Why, why are you promoting this? And then he divulged to me that he had been diagnosed with cancer two weeks prior. 
I thought it was appropriate at that time to let him know that five months after I started working on this study, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. So I was going through breast cancer treatment concurrently while I was working on this study so I could really hear him. I understood why he was angry and what he wanted to hear from me. And in the moment, I had to think very deeply, why are we advocating using tripicillocybin to help people who have cancer? And I remembered my favorite analogy. Psilocybin, the way I think about it, when people's thinking gets into a groove and negative patterns and thoughts plague us like a skip on a record, psilocybin can come in like a giant hand and just jiggle that needle a little bit. And I think he heard me. I think he understood that we're not doing this study to study drug effects, but to explore the benefits of altering how we think um, and how we feel. So one minute. OK, I've got one minute. Um, I'll, I'll end with an anecdote that also addresses sort of a larger societal issue about why we might be doing this research. We had a participant in the study who had never been high. She'd never taken a psychedelic, led a very straight life. She was a mom and good, solid citizen. And she approached me to be in the study, but had real reservations because she had decided to go off the antidepressant that she was taking that her doctor put her on when she started chemo. He said, this will help keep your mood up. And she thought, after a while, this isn't doing anything for me. I don't need to take another drug. So she went off of the Zoloft. And by the time she approached me, she was starting to feel, oh, now I know why I'm on an antidepressant. And she was concerned if she got the placebo the first time, she wouldn't be able to hold out and wait for the psilocybin. Well, she went through both sessions. And at the one-month follow-up, her tongue had been badly burned by radiation therapy. But she wanted to talk to me on the phone, even though speaking was painful for her. She said, Alicia, I have to tell you something, and I want you to tell this to other people when I'm gone. I didn't go back on the Zoloft, and I don't need to go back on an SSRI. And the only thing I can attribute it to was my psilocybin treatment. And she remained off antidepressants until she died about four months later. So I'll just leave you with that thought as you uh, struggle with the question of why do this research. I'll just uh, I'll leave you with that image. So thank you. Thank you very much, Alicia. Um, our next speaker, our next panelist is, um, it's quite an honor for me to be in this context with him after many years of friendship and exploration, um, Dr. Ralph Metzner, PhD, a psychotherapist and professor emeritus at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, the founder and president of the Green Earth Foundation. Look that up online. Um, He's renowned for having conducted uh, the now legendary studies of psychedelic drugs at Harvard in the 1960s with Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert. And uh, they co-authored the classic work, The Psychedelic Experience. Ralph has written many 
articles and books, and I just discovered yesterday he has a wonderful blog, ralphmetzlerblog.org, I think it is. Um, so really, check that out too. His many other books include, and these are written over the last 30-some years, The Well of Remembrance, The Unfolding Self, Green Psychology, The Expansion of Consciousness, The Roots of War and Domination, and uh, two collections, Sacred Vine of Spirits, Ayahuasca, and The Sacred Mushroom of Visions, Teo Nanakato. He most recently collaborated with uh, Ram Das and Gary Bravo on a new book called Birth of a Psychedelic Culture, uh, contemporary interviews with both of them about their history and mm, thoughts on that many decades later. It's a wonderful book. Uh, gosh, there's so much more here. He co-wrote The Psychedelic Experience and was editor of The Psychedelic Review way back. And starting in the 60s, that was. And uh, during the 1970s, he spent 10 years in the intensive study and practice of Agni Yoga, a meditative system of working with light, fire, life energies. And there's much more here, but I, that reminds me to just say before Ralph comes up that uh, most of us working in this field, and many of you may know this from your own lives, have combined studies in multiple fields and weave them together in our search for wisdom and for a sane and, and healing practice in our lives. And so the way that yoga or breathing or meditation or wilderness exploration or, or all of these different things come together, um, they, they weave with uh, psychedelic awareness and experience. And I'd like to uh, introduce you to Dr. Ralph Metzner. Well, thank you, Kat, for the very generous introduction, and thank you for inviting me to speak to you. The Bioneers is a favorite group of mine that I like to love to be associated with. Is this working okay? Uh, okay. So, and I like the concept of the growing edge. You know, as Kat was mentioning, the cutting edge is okay, but it's a technological metaphor. You know, when you, you, you're making a piece of furniture, you want to be, have a clean cutting edge. But when you're talking about plants, um, and culture, if you're talking about a culture, then uh, it's the growing edge. You think of a tree and the, the growing the tips of the tree or the growing tips of a plant or the growing part of a fungus <laughs> or uh, a, network, a group of people growing together and meeting and talking about their shared interests. That's a, a growth, a connection. And the whole concept of culture is really interesting. That's why Ramdas and I, it's a conversational memoir. We're sitting, talking, conversation with Gary Bravo as a kind of a moderator, keep us straight, so to speak, and uh, um, about the Harvard studies and, uh, and, and the experiments we did in Millbrook, about a five-year period. And uh, we wanted to bring out the idea of a culture what is a culture? You know, and we, we talk about a mushroom, for example, a mushroom culture, right? The mycelium of trees is a culture. It's a connection. It's not a hierarchy. It's a web of interconnection, sometimes of enormous size. 
And um, that's what a culture is like. For example, the culture of people who are interested in consciousness-expanding substances and who use them to expand their consciousness is an, an invisible network. It's an underground culture. Why is it underground? Well, the reason is obvious, because uh, certain structures above ground uh, prohibit the use of certain substances. Now, this is very strange. And uh, I just would like to ask you to, to think about this question, and maybe we can discuss it more. Like here is now research being done by people like Charlie Grove and many others, and Alicia and others who are exploring this fantastic possible applications of a drug that is illegal to use. Now, isn't that strange? I mean, there's other drug research, say drugs on Prozac or antidepressants or whatever they may be, and they're not illegal to use. Now, they are, well, they may be illegal to use in the, <laughs> except in the, in the culture, you know, in the, in the legal su substance. But here's a drug that's already widely known and widely used and trying to move from the culture into the laboratories, which usually it goes the other way. So there's something very strange and something very ancient and sort of autonomous happening in this whole field, which I think is the, probably the reason why you're here. So I want to talk about three main areas of, that I think of potential applications. That are, There is now a new wave of research applications, of sort of the 70s and 80s and 90s were basically a dead period for psychedelic research. It basically came to a complete stop. And just in the last 10, 15 years has it started to pick up again. Many different areas. One is the area of the treatment of addictions and compulsions. And addictions and compulsions you can think of as being contracted states of consciousness, con con repetitive and contracted states of consciousness. And I'm actually interested in bringing back a term that my old friend and colleague Timothy Leary originally coined for these substances that are now become, we call them psychedelic, and that's the term consciousness expanding. And I actually like the term better than psychedelic, because psychedelic has acquired all kinds of other baggage. You know, like a sort of a subculture. My daughter, when she was like 12 years old, came back from school and said something, whoa, that's psychedelic. But she didn't know anything what wasn't about drugs. It was about swirling paisley patterns, you see, which is not psychedelic experience, actually. It's not a consciousness-expanding experience. It's visual patterns. So consciousness-expanding uses two words that everybody knows, consciousness and expansion. It's an interesting concept. What is it? You know, it makes you ask yourself, who knew that consciousness could be expanded? What happens when you expand consciousness? Actually, you expand consciousness every morning when you wake up. Because before that time, when you, you, you were in your dream, you're following your dream images, and then you wake up, you open your eyes, you become aware, oh, here's my bed, here's my body. I'm in this body, I'm in this bed. Here's my sleeping partner, here's this room, here's the garden outside, constantly expanding, expanding, expanding all the way to cosmic consciousness, kind of mystical experiences. And then what's the opposite? Consciousness contraction. Consciousness contraction is not a bad thing. You focus, you focus. I'm, like, I'm focused right now on uh, you, know, you, interacting with you, and you're probably focused here and listening. And, but our consciousness could expand very easily. We're not so much aware of what's going on outside, 
but that would change. Let's say an elephant walked through the room, then we would all like pay attention to that, you see, and our consciousness would expand. Well, there's other stuff going on outside. So consciousness can expand and contract, and ideally, in a healthy state, it would be under control of our intention, of our conscious need. There's certain situations where you contract, and others. Now, addictions and compulsions you can think of as being repetitive, fixated states of consciousness. There's nothing wrong with drinking alcohol. There's nothing wrong even with smoking pot or you know, doing the other things that people get addicted to, compulsive behavior of various kinds. What makes it an addiction or, pro or pathological situation that has detrimental effect on a person's life and family and community, job, all these other things, is the repetitive fixation and not moving on, you know, normally you take a drink and then you move on to other parts of your life. Uh, when you don't do that and, you know, you start thinking about the next drug, the next time I can drink, the next time I can, and it becomes more and more takes over your life. That's the familiar pattern. And um, so it makes sense that consciousness expansion experiences could be used in the treatment of addictions and compulsions, which was, in fact, the main first application, LSD, and treatment of alcoholism. Ayahuasca, iboga are being used in the treatment of addiction, addictions. Uh, um, uh, psilocybin is now again being used in the treatment of OCD, which is the broader concept, repetitive fixated kinds of behavior. And um, uh, the, um, I want to give you a, 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 a little story about an image in the, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, there's this image of the, the wheel of life and, life and death, the wheel of birth and death. There are six different realms that you can be in, a, in, a, in of them, realms of consciousness and experience. And one of them is the realm of the hungry ghosts. And the hungry ghosts are, have enormous bellies and very thin thr throats. They're always looking for something to eat and to drink, but when they find it, they can't actually kind of receive it. They can't take it in. And they're perpetually frustrated, you know, like, like in that Rolling Stones song, I can't get no satisfaction. You know, I've got to get it again, some, some more, some more. And in the, in the images, the paintings of the wheel of birth and death, it's a beautiful image because there's a Buddha figure and these, these praetors, they're called praetors, the realm of uh, the hungry ghost realm with extended bellies and hungry but frustrated, they're, they're looking. And, the Buddha figure has threads, and the threads come from the hand to the chin of these figures, and he's pulling them up as if to say, look up, look around you. There's another whole, there's a whole world around you. you know? And that's what happens with, uh, ideally, uh, and that's how the consciousness expanding experience can help someone expand their point of view and look beyond and see their repetitive behavior in a larger context and be aware of other values that they have. Um, so then um, I think the other really significant, uh, tremendously significant area of application is in the preparation for dying. And um, the more I think about that study, first of all, uh, as a culture, we don't do very well preparing people for dying. Mostly in the medical kind of conventional medical system, the whole thing is deny that you're dying for as long as possible or prevent dying for as long as possible rather than helping the person prepare for dying, which is eventually going to happen no matter what. You can delay it as long as possible, but we all know it's eventually going to happen. We're all going to die. So why not focus some energy as cultures have done for 
millennia since the beginnings of culture on preparing people for entry into this other realm. And of course, that's part of the fear because we don't know what the other realm is. But it turns out that these sacred substances and sacred plants and mushrooms have been used to ex expand people's awareness into the other realms which exist beyond the ordinary realm that goes be between birth and death. And that's why there is a wonderful book on this a treat treatment of uh, addiction. It's called the, Hun the Hungry Ghost Realm, by, uh, In the Realm of a Hungry Ghost by Gabor Mate, a Canadian psychiatrist. He doesn't talk about psychedelics, consciousness expanding, but he talks in a very sensitive and beautiful empathic way about the whole process of addiction. So the preparation for dying uh, in the study that uh, Charlie and Alicia did, there was a woman, uh, I just want to briefly tell you the story. Uh, they made a film of it, an, an interview of a woman who'd gone through the study, and uh, she, um, she described how, uh, you know, uh, she had a diagnosis of cancer, terminal cancer, which in itself also is a very significant, uh, the, the fact of that research is very significant, I think, in terms of the culture, because the authorities that gave permission to do the study knew that the psilocybin is not a treatment for cancer. It's not that, you see. This is actually an expansion of the medical model. It's being given to alleviate the anxiety about dying, which is a universal thing. <laughs> not just people who have cancer. So uh, Anyway, so she described how she had all these fears, what was going to happen to her, what was going to happen to her family, what was going to, how it was going to affect her husband, and you know, how it was going to devastate him, and all these worries. And, and she said, as the psilocybin took hold, these worries and fears congealed into a sort of a blob. She actually said entity that sat on her chest. And then it dissolved, poof, like that. And she realized at that same instant that actually she was not dead. She was alive, and her husband loved her, and her family loved her, and her life was beautiful. And she focused, and the death was coming, but it was not there yet. <laughs> and so she focused, she went back to gardening, enjoying her family, appreciated, she even took up yoga, and you know, the last few months of her life. We were beautiful. How much time do I have? One minute. Okay. So, very briefly, I think one other significant, powerful area is the use of MDMA in the treatment of PTSD and war trauma. There's something like 200, 300,000 veterans from Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, and other wars suffering from PTSD. There is no treatment for them except to give them Prozac and antidepressant for the rest of their lives. And even that doesn't work. Because, and they can't get it very often. And uh, it's a scandal, actually, that more isn't done for the military, which we're so proud of all the time and saying the greatest military in the world, and we don't take care of our own soldier. It's a, it's a scandal for the United States. And uh, PTSD is uh, therapy, not just drug, not just giving them the drug, not that kind of a thing. It's a healing process. And it's only unfortunate that, uh, yes, the study is being done and uh, they're being done. Of course, it's a small drop in the bucket to uh, the need that has to happen. So that's uh, the thought I want to leave with you.
Thank you very much, Ralph. You can see the riches within each one of these people and how, how much could be learned from each one. So I hope you get a good, good taste that sends you looking farther, all of you out there. And our next um, wonderful person who wears many hats is uh, Maria Vittoria Mangini, um, also known in some places as Hidden Mountain. Um, She's a PhD and family nurse practitioner, a midwife for 25 years. She's written extensively on the impact of psychedelic experiences in shaping the lives of her contemporaries and has worked closely with many of the most distinguished investigators in the field. Um, Maria is the uh, program director of the family nurse practitioner master's degree program at Holy Names University in Oakland, California, um, where she teaches as well. And her current project is the development of what she calls and is coming to be called death midwifery, a practice providing services to dying people and their families. In her work with the dying and their loved ones, uh, Maria reports that her own experiences with psychedelics and the stories told to her by her participants and uh, they've formed her ideas about death and dying in ways that helped her to participate usefully in the deaths of her patients and, and the deaths within her own family that have taught her a great deal as well. Uh, Maria's research uses narrative inquiry as the tool for analysis. This is a method that emphasizes the, the person, the human being, the political and cultural contexts in which the research takes place, and it includes stories, journals, letters, conversations, family histories, photos, and life experiences as uh, some, of, but not all, of the data sources. Uh, Maria collaborated with Charles Grobe and George Greer to edit a monograph issue of the Journal of Psychoactive Drugs uh, in 1998 on the therapeutic uses of hallucinogens. At that time, that was, uh, you know, as we've been saying, new territory uh, for publishing about that sort of thing. She wrote particularly about the treatment of alcoholism using psychedelic drugs in that journal. In, a couple of years ago, in 2008, uh, Maria Mangini, along with Annie Oak and Carolyn Garcia, founded a new nonprofit organization, the Women's Visionary Council, and that will be, that supports the work of visionary women healers, scholars, activists, and artists, especially those who study consciousness. And um, the fourth annual Congress, as I mentioned, will be happening on October 22nd to 24th, 2010, up at the Institute of Noetic Sciences in Petaluma. Look it up, visionarycongress.org. Um, and finally, the members of the Women's Visionary Congress Board are currently collaborating with Cynthia Palmer on a project to recognize the, the unique contributions that women have made in psychedelic research and in psychedelic activism over the years, often unmarked, often um, it had to be that way, invisible, but uh, bringing this into visibility and acknowledging these women and the work that they and we have done over the, the last century or so. Um, they're attempting to develop a more complete understanding of the historic and contemporary roles by women in this program of research. So and those, I'm leaving out quite a bit about Maria actually, and she's another fantastic human being, Maria Mangini.
oh, I feel like Rip Van Winkle. I, uh, I feel like I woke up in a completely changed world. Um, when I began my career as a um, above-ground researcher, uh, it was 1994. It was a kind of an unusual thing for somebody to take up this topic because it's, it, it, uh, it was a narrative that didn't have much space given to it in contemporary discourse. Um, there were lots of different kinds of ways that people's unusual experiences could be described, but they mostly, if they fitted into a, um, a, uh, the kind of topic areas that you would hear about in an academic environment, they were, depending upon the cultural context in which they occurred, understood to be things like toxic psychoses or uh, possession by a demon, depending upon what department you belong to. And we've come a long way since then. Um, but, uh, you know, there is that sort of legacy of the collective story being one that was not told uh, in groups. And the, the tremendous amount of movement that I can recognize that has taken place in the last 15 years, I think, is the result of that, the, the, the capacity of people to come together to tell a collective story. And because of that, and because this forum was supposed today to uh, address research topics specifically, I wanted to talk a little bit about my program of research and what is different about the kind of research and the uh, criteria that are used to uh, evaluate and look at that kind of research as distinct from some of the more familiar um, and maybe more empirical um, programs that uh, are definitely easier for people to um, identify and, and evaluate on the basis of things that we're uh, accustomed to use for that kind of evaluation. Um, the the ta the uh, the method that I use in the work that I do is called narrative analysis, and what it is is a, uh, an attempt to evaluate stories. Um, there are basically two uh, main uh, branches of narrative analysis. And um, they have to do with uh, whether the um, analyst is trying to explain something or describe something. Now, explanatory narrative research is what we think of as conventional history. It's also what's done in investigative journalism. Um, people are trying to describe what happened, uh, what events occurred, why those events occurred. The thing that's the topic of analysis is how the story is told. What um, what things are emphasized, what things are de-emphasized, what pace is given to the way things are explained. I made a strong attempt to do this in my own development as a scholar in the uh, writing that Kat made reference to when I wrote about the history of um, LSD as a treatment for alcoholism. And I tried to explain how that research program unfolded and why it closed up. And uh, it was a very interesting uh, experience for me because I had an agenda. I thought that the program of research had closed down largely because of political things, and I uh, was forced to confront the fact that there were some deficiencies in the way that the research was conducted, and that the political reality of the situation had um, made it difficult to continue, but it, it, uh, it wasn't the only reason why that program of research didn't pan out better. And this was pointed out to me by one of the people who was a participant in the, the, uh, the time and topic when it was a fresh topic. 
he said to me, you know, a lawyer tries to make the best possible case that he can, but a scholar needs to make a true case. And um, that, was a, that was an important recognition for me because I realized that I had an agenda that I was trying to serve in my writing. I was trying to serve it by the way, the order, the language that I used to prevent, present things. And I think you can do that persuasively only up to a point where you get um, called upon to uh, adhere to what you know to be true in a kind of undeniable way. The other kind of narrative research, however, is more descriptive narrative research, and it has to do with the way that people tell their own stories. And you, you, know, you probably all recognize this from things like the plots of novels. There are uh, different kinds of trajectories. There's usually an end point. The story comes to an end at a certain point. And how you get to that point is the topic. So um, are people doing very, very well only to have a reversal of fortune? And does it happen very quickly? That's a sort of classic tragedy. Or there's a classic kind of uh, happy ending story where there's a lot of reversals and then people go into a kind of stability narrative and they live happily ever after. There's a kind of comedy narrative where people are getting a lot of reversals and then everything turns out all right in the end. All of these things occur in the stories that participants in my um, psychedelic research have told to me about their uh, psychedelic experiences, but what um, they're, and they were all very different kinds of stories. But what those stories all seemed to have in common to me, at least at the time that I was doing this, was that people weren't telling them to anybody else. And I thought that was probably because they were afraid of what the consequences would be to them. When actually, the more people I talked to, the more clear it became to me that there just really wasn't any place to tell those stories in the society that they were presently living in. It was just as if those things, no matter how important they had been to the person who experienced them, didn't really have any uh, relevance or any salience with the life that they were living at the present time. And this is a very, very interesting area to me. Um, there are a couple of things about it that I think are really interesting. One of them is the way in which we've sort of categorized all those stories that have to do with drug use. What is it about drug use that so vexes the Puritan mind? Um, all those, all those drug use stories, you can tell them publicly as long as they're part of a shame narrative or remorse or you went to therapy or um, you know, you're repentant for having done it. Um, but but it, it, increasingly it is possible to tell somewhat different versions of those stories, but when I began this program of research, it really was not. Um, now, the, the outcome of that is that the, the stories that, that um, people wanted to tell about this had no real place in the society. There was no real um, uh, collective environment in which people could share this information. And it makes it difficult for people to organize. It makes it almost impossible for any kind of a movement to occur. And there are lots of different academic categories that are used to describe this. One of them that I like a lot is linguistic incongruence. It just doesn't make sense to talk about this in any way that um, uh, that is uh, coherent in the, in the uh, world in which you're presently living. But um, I feel like in this forum, with this group of people, there is a certain underlying awareness of the importance and the utility of some of these kinds of things that makes it very much easier for people to come together, for people to go through the process of conscientization where they recognize that they belong to a a group of people who maybe have been disadvantaged in telling their story and that by coming together they can move the social fabric forward. 
And um, I also saw Amigo Bob Cantisano last night, and he was telling me he has his 75 reasons why the hippies were right, which I really want to look at. Because I think that this, um, this, this, uh, the need to tell these stories and the way in which they haven't been told is a keystone of the sort of societal attempt to devalue a lot of the insights of the um, 1960s specific, specifically. And um, I think for a lot of us, drugs were a gateway to a radically altered kind of worldview. And um, so what I think we have at the present moment is not really a drug policy pro problem nearly so much as we have a drug discussion problem. And I really want to thank the people who have stayed with it in the conventional realm and done the sort of slow process of getting the credentials and getting the approvals and getting the funding to be able to get this research published in the, the influential journals. Because when Ralph was trying to put out the first issues of the Psychedelic Review years ago, even the advertisements for the Psychedelic Review were being refused by those same journals. So, um, you know, we've sort of, we're, we're kind of waking up into a new environment in which a lot of things are possible. I think that, um, I'm not a sociologist, I'm not a medical doctor, I'm a nurse, and uh, I don't really have the, the prospect that I'm, uh, at least in the immediate future, going to be able to actually administer any of these therapies to any of my patients. But the awareness that these stories have given me about how certain things work out for people and for lots of people who share, share, share these stories in common informs my practice as a healthcare provider, as I think it informs the practices of lots of people who have very far-reaching ripple effects in the so so social fabric as a whole. And uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to this um, uh, the, the, the way in which these transformations, the environmental reverence, the body-affirming spirituality, the appreciation of holistic therapies, the liberationist egalitarian politics that have gradually infiltrated and influenced our society in small ways, I think that is at the point where those things are going to grow exponentially and we're going to see a lot more of it, and this is just the group to do it. Well, thank you very much to all of you, and thanks for your attention. We started late here as people filtered in, and we're going to continue on a bit late, but another group comes in at 4.30. So I'd like to open it up right now to questions, if anyone has questions, and that would mean this is all being recorded without your name. Don't worry. <laughs> but you have to walk up to the microphone and speak clearly into the microphone, and then we'll discuss it until it's the next person's turn. And I'll, I'll uh, manage the questions. Yes. Uh, thanks. Um, it's nice to hear about applications of psychedelics for people with various ailments and post-traumatic stress and autism and the like. But what about, what, could you, the researchers, give me a timeline of what it, would be, what it would take and how long it would take and what the path would be for these substances to finally get available to this vast population out here that are healthy and looking forward to expanding their own consciousness. That is, availability to the general public for positive uses. 
short answer to that, never. <laughs> and uh, that's not cynical. Um, I think it's just realistic. That's not the point of the research. The point of the research is not to create a drug for general use. It's not like Prozac. It's not like that. It'll never be like that, and you don't want it to be like that. Uh, because what I think what could, what could happen would be that there could be treatment centers for something like alcoholism, which would be holistic treatment centers where people uh, would undergo yoga and therapy and diet and exercises and medical and ex consciousness expanding experiences like this. Um, but, and and uh, there could be treatment centers like that for the addictions, and they are ar arising in different problems. But as a recreational drugs for the psychedelics, you can forget it. It's not going to happen. And, uh, but now cannabis is a different story. You know, it's a psychedelic consciousness-expanding substance, and it's also a recreational drug, <laughs> and it also has medicinal uses, and we're right in the thick of the politics of that. So uh, it's on the ballot initiative in, uh, in California. So now the underground, I think the use of psychedelics will always remain an underground culture, and it's probably better that way. Anyway, we don't have any choice over the matter. <laughs> uh, because uh, because I, the reason I say it's probably better that way is because when you're talking about drugs, as soon as you start talking about drugs, it's going to be misunderstood. Because the use of these consciousness-expanding plants and substances is not about drugs. It's about consciousness. <laughs> and what does it mean to expand your consciousness? Maybe I could also mention uh, uh, some comments in relation to your, to your statement. Uh, I should also mention the work of Roland Griffiths at Johns Hopkins, who in addition to his uh, cancer anxiety study, he has also published a, uh, a very important uh, investigation looking at the effects on normal volunteers uh, on, on their spirituality and uh, the degree to which it has impacted their, their lives. And he, he found profoundly positive effects. Now, I agree with Ralph. I don't know if never is the right word to use, but we're some time away from blanket permission. But there is now work looking at the impact on so-called normals. Uh, very important in of itself, and also very important because the old research in the 50s and 60s found that with uh, treating alcoholics and treating uh, terminal cancer anxiety, that the people who, the patients who had the best therapeutic outcome were those who during the course of their session had a profound psycho-spiritual epiphany. So that seems to be a key component there. And, and I would just like to add, I always, when I'm posing a question to myself or hear one, I try to look at the traditions that I've experienced things in and see how would they deal with that question. Um, and so, for instance, the Mazatecs with psilocybin mushrooms in Mexico or some of the ayahuasca-using peoples of the Amazon, um, they, in general, generally speaking, don't, it's not about big festivals and everybody takes it, you know. But um, if there's uh, a run of bad luck in an extended family or a village, many people might get together and take it together in order to, to hold the one who's had the worst luck or the accident or in order to understand together what shift, community-wide shift, might be made to make things better or sometimes just to say thank you because it's such a beautiful life. And those are 
not wild, unregulated uses, but they are a more collective and less focused therapeutic use. Yeah, thanks for your question. I, I have one quick uh, note to add. If you okay. are interested in what individuals who are sort of working on a different level are, are um, promoting in terms of what they're referring to as the betterment of well people, there's a resource online. If you go to entheoguide.net, that's a resource of some of the collective wisdom that people who are not working on the classical mainstream research track are trying to create a repository for good information about what you're referring to. Thank you. Yeah. Entheo, like entheogen, entheoguide.net. E N T H E O guide. G-U-I-D-E G -U -I -D -E dot, dot net. net. <laughs> okay, thank you. So uh, first I just wanted to thank all of you for doing what you do, and uh, thank you for uh, helping the burners out there. And um, my question was uh, about the synthetic psilocybin. It was the first time I ever even heard about it, and it seemed to me like, well, why would you use this powder like a, you know, like a, I mean, maybe there's side effects, or maybe, you know, like anything synthetic sounds yucky to me, you know, just, so A, is there side effects, and B, why did, and, and how do you know it's exactly, like, going to do the exact same thing what psilocybin does? Well, um, you know, you know it, was, it was actually Albert Hoffman in the uh, late 50s who uh, first isolated psilocybin from mushrooms, and we know that it's one of perhaps three, perhaps more, but uh, three primary uh, alkaloids in mushrooms. So the the effects of pure psilocybin somewhat different than mushrooms, per se. And of course, concentrations vary depending on the species, depending on the potency. But c clearly, psilocybin has a very powerful uh, psychedelic effect. Also, when you're doing the kind of research we're doing, it's, uh, it, we, we really have to be very um, strict on dosage. So we're working on a milligram per kilogram body weight of dosage. And uh, pure psilocybin is uh, more predictable in regards to the effects. Uh, mushrooms, again, are variable, depending on the species, depending on that, that batch of mushrooms. So it's a, uh, on, the, on the one hand, mushrooms might be an interesting alternative, but when doing this kind of rigorous scientific study, it's to our advantage to work with the, uh, a, a pure alkaloid. And um, doesn't, for permitting purposes, don't you have to be working with very standardized pure? Yeah, well, um, you know, to, to the degree that uh, it's very difficult to get the permission to work with psychedelics, per se, to work with plant psychedelics is even more challenging. For instance, we've tried to get an ayahuasca study going, but it's not only um, a psychedelic, it's not only a plant psychedelic, it's a decoction of two different plants that work synergistically together. That's almost too much for the regulatory agencies to wrap their their minds around, but hopefully in the future we'll be able to look at the pure plant products, but for now we're very uh, grateful we can work with these synthetic alkaloids. That, that's the difference between there's a subculture of medical, psychiatric, pharmacological research. Yes. It's a set of relationships of professional interests and associations that pursue this kind of research. It has its own rules, uh, and uh, that's why one of the reasons people don't like the, the research community doesn't like to do research on pot, for example. They don't like the fact that you just smoke 
a, some grass, you know. They want it to be a controlled dosage. But there's another large, much larger culture which is involved in the use. The, the Harvard studies we did with psilocybin, not with mushrooms, we couldn't get the mushrooms. We could get the psilocybin, then after it all became illegal, you couldn't get the psilocybin. And uh, enterprising people started growing the mushrooms. This is why I'm interested in people's stories, because I'm very grateful that this um, program of research is going on and that the publications particularly are going on because there's a, there's a level of personal responsibility that people have to take if they're gonna distinguish the true from the bogus. And we have a lot of rules that govern certain kinds of science whereby this kind of stuff can be evaluated, but there's a whole other level of people's experience and the stories that they tell about those experiences, which is also there to be evaluated. And um, this is, I think, what Kat makes reference to when she talks about folk research. This mm -hmm. has been going on, this has always been going on. And I think, it's, I think it's just splendid that our social forms are coming to the place where we can go ahead with this sort of thing, but it has never really gone away. Thank you. Yes. Hi. 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 Thank you for um, your words of wisdom today. Uh, a follow-up kind of on, on, on that question. I had the same thought when it came to psilocybin mushrooms and psilocybin in extracted form. I'm assuming the psilocybin is coming from Purdue. Is that no? Um, it's um, uh, synthesized by a uh, company in Massachusetts that's under, that's under contract with uh, the government to make uh, Schedule I uh, drugs for clinical research. It's organics. Um, in, in, in carrying that forward to like uh, eco-psychology and, and the therapies that many people are going, going to be going through in the next few years, um, perhaps you know, in growing your own food and growing your own medicine, that, that's a benefit for a lot of people. And if they can see the mushroom, pick the mushroom, and eat the mushroom, there's per, you know, if we're talking a connection to the planet. Um, you know, in the clinical lab, I certainly see the steps. But um, in, in looking forward, um, do you see that evolution? Do, do you even see those requests coming in? Are people surprised that they're getting a powder rather than an actual mushroom? I mean. Probably not because you're teaching them, but, but is that a request of people coming forward? And, and is that a direction that you see um, more people going? Most people who are taking psilocybin are probably taking it grown in a mushroom. Um, when, when do you see that link crossing over to practice? Uh, to my knowledge, there is no underground pure psilocybin. It's only uh, been available for research studies. Now, we did have some subjects who were, had some prior experience with mushrooms, and uh, for them, it was interesting to contrast the, the level of experience in our study with that which they had had some time previous. Um, in terms of future directions, sure. If uh, th this field continues to evolve, if the funding base improves, because right now that's the rate-limiting step, certainly you know, e examining the range of effects of, uh, of mushrooms uh, in various populations would be very interesting. But uh, at this point in time, we're, 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 we really need to focus on the, the pure alkaloid. And I'd just like to say that the, uh, thank you for your question, the uh, eat local, movement encourages growing your own <laughs> tomatoes and, and mushrooms and everything else. <laughs> I, and a lot of research, as we keep saying, is going on there. It's just we're in this, 
it seems to me that we have this huge body of constant need, recognition of need, experts arising, uh, being trained by experience, different psychedelics appearing and moving through these people who have both the needs, the desires, the expertise, and it's all swirling just under the surface, and we all know it has been now for a couple of generations, and it's just now bubbling to the top where we can also talk about it and document it and publish about it and even get permits to do it on the surface and to get it into clinics and hospitals and eventually where people are dying, hospice, these kinds of things. It's uh, everything else. It's, it's the, the underground holds up the ground, basically, right? So it's, it's doing that in this realm, too. Yeah, uh, we have just a, maybe five more minutes. Uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you. I was surprised and pleasantly surprised to find this here to being discussed. In any of your research, have you found any implications of uh, maybe a root of positive impact as a... As a a resulting more intimate connection with the natural world, uh, including personal relationships uh, with oneself and others? Maria. Absolutely, yes. Um, I uh, did an interview study of about 40 uh, middle-aged people uh, in which I listened to their stories about their uh, psychedelic experiences. Some of them had taken place 25 years before I interviewed them. Some of them had taken place 24 hours before I interviewed them. And the, 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 the one most significant common thread that all those people had uh, reported was that they were better, that, that they were better. They, they had experienced, uh, they had had experiences of cosmic unity and they variously said that they were better parents, that they were more in touch with the natural world, that they took better care of their bodies, that they were more aware of uh, the, the, what Caroline Casey calls human rudeness, that we didn't just take whatever we wanted and do whatever we pleased with the planet, that these were, and many of them were introduced to various aspects of spirituality, which they had, you know, great many people who are American Buddhists kind of got their first idea that they wanted to explore spirituality in that way from psychedelic experiences. There are a fair number of people that write on that topic. There are lots of people who, once they got the message, they hung up the phone. They didn't keep doing this all the time every day, but they learned something from the way in which these experiences can uh, change people's awareness of what's alive around them, and it made all the difference in their lives. Thank you. I can speak to some of the outcomes we saw in our small study with 12 individuals. There were two married couples that were really kind of heading into the weeds in their marriage because the cancer was causing so much anxiety, which led to bickering and kind of the joy was going out of the marriages because of the disease. So both couples cited the psilocybin experience as being very instrumental in helping bring them back together and resolve some of the issues that were straining the marriages. And uh, one, one individual I'll mention, just because this person spoke publicly and openly about this, uh, our youngest participant was really concerned about not enjoying romance and physical intimacy with the time left, and was really becoming consumed about being stuck with a, a, an ex who was helping as a caregiver and was they're kind of in the same space and it wasn't working. And, and working with Dr. Grobe, this person was able to kind of see, oh, this person is not my ideal. I don't know how much time I have left, but I'm going to go out and find a good partner. Uh, and 
they were successful in doing that. So um, those are just uh, a couple of examples of, of relationship and what we saw outcomes in, in our study that the participants directly attributed to having the psilocybin experience. Thank you. Okay, one more question. Sorry. So uh, I'm a psychiatrist who has a particular interest in the uh, ritual that's inherent in medical practice but is often ignored. So I'm intrigued by, Dr. Grove, your in interest and emphasis on the importance of ritual for both safety and efficacy, and wondering if you have um, any ideas where you could point me to research, or anyone on the panel for that matter, who's actually looked at the consistencies, regardless of spiritual traditions, of this ethnobotany and how it's being used so that I can bring some of that wisdom and to my work um, as I try to highlight the potency of, say, the operating room as a sacred space. That's a great idea. I mean, we, of course, the, the operating room, the medical consultation, it's all ritual. It's a ritual. Well, yes. And as I'm, we I'm, know. I, I'm just, yeah. but I don't know if, yeah. I have not been able to find people who are studying it separately and yeah. distinctly from the ethno, yeah. I mean, from a anthropological, cultural, but now adding um, psychedelics to it. Right. You know, yeah, I, I've written some articles with Marlene Dopkin de Rios, an anthropologist who's written extensively on the uh, use of uh, ayahuasca and other psychedelic plants throughout South America. And, and she does look at the, um, the, the value of ritual and the value of context, and uh, w w without which uh, d dangers are amplified and, uh, and uh, potential benefit is, is minimized. So um, there's a little work in that area. I'll also say that when we, when we brought in a ritual to, the, um, to preceding the ingestion and incorporating the ingestion of the compound within the research study, we found it and our subjects reported back to us that this was of great value to help them anchor in, in, in the experience and to really, help, uh, to really help as an implicit guide for what, what would ensue. I think this is a vital issue. I think it's generally been ignored by the profession, but as we continue to work more with psychedelics, the value of ritual, I think, is, uh, will, will, you know, will need to be examined more, more thoroughly. Okay, thank you very much, everyone, for your, for your attention. Thank you to the panelists, too.